Welcome to The Back Shop, a podcast about the concepts and practice of media with a focus on its impact on society. Each week, we cover ideas about the theories, concepts, and history that have driven media development. We will also keep an eye on how new technologies are changing traditional ways of getting information at a time when democracy needs our engagement more than ever. This is The Back Shop. I'm your host, Jeremy Lata, an associate professor of journalism and communication at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. All right, everybody. Uh, last episode, we covered the, um, the theoretical ways of thinking about media. And I told you that the next episodes, we're going to cover a zoom-in view of a, a few really critical theories uh, that guide the way we think about our field. Just as a quick refresher, um, if uh, you are listening with some space between these episodes, um, the reason we, we use theory is because it helps us understand and it helps us explain what's going on. And my intention with these, these theoretical ways is to kind of briefly give you an overview of how the theory works, but then to give you some real practical ways of thinking about it, because they really do help explain um, what you see in media. And my goal is to help deconstruct these kind of broad brush ways of thinking about media. Um, you know, we talk about them as if they have these um, agendas or um, you know, goals to try to manipulate the public um, as, as part of their, their, their design in terms of how they, what they produce. Um, but one of the things I hope you will pull out of these next few episodes is how automated some of this is. That is, it's built around um, processes that have been in place for decades in some cases. And um, so a lot of these are kind of these, these forces that are guiding the way journalists make decisions, and they're, they're often very unthinking. So today, um, this episode is dealing with gatekeeping theory. Um, gatekeeping theory is one of the older ways of thinking about the field of mass communication, um, the term comes from some of the work that Kurt Lewin did in the 1940s. He was a social psychologist that was looking at decision-making processes in media. And, um, his work was, has been, he, uh, he did some of the initial work on gatekeeping. Um, and then we, we started to see newsroom research that was looking at essentially how journalists make decisions. Probably one of the best known names in my field now, um, in the area of gatekeeping is Pam Shoemaker, um, who has done several different, um, studies and, and books in some cases that have looked at the different ways of thinking about gatekeeping. Broadly defined, um, gatekeeping describes the the process by which we come to see what we see in media. And that is, it looks at decision-making processes that media makers um, have um, in place, either automated, um, just built into the way in which this stuff is done, or, or specific decisions built around like, you know, everyday conversations that essentially decide what we, we, we see because they are the, the gates um, by which the, either things get through or not. And that in this case, it means if they choose to, to cover something, then it gets through the gates. If they don't, because of any kind of constraint or um, decision that, that this isn't as important as other things, then, then it, it does not come to the public's attention. So the way gatekeeping theory works is this: is that there in 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 journalistic worlds, um, you know, there's there's a lot of things that are going on. Imagine yourself as a reporter or an editor working in a community in, in some community in in America. Um, there's a lot of things going on in that city. You know, um, items big and small. Sometimes it could be political news. Sometimes it could be happy, silly stories. Um, it could be kind of a mix of things. That uh, that are across the spectrum of from serious to um, to what we call soft news, 
and by just by definition, even in even in a mid-sized community, um, there's more there's more going on than a journalist can cover, and, and that that a news organization could realistically get out to its audience, in, in either in newspapers, which are limited by costs that associated with the printing of of, of news. Um, so, you know, they have resource problems that constrain them from from running everything. Um, or a newscast or a radio broadcast that only has a limited amount of airtime. So, what the what gatekeeping theory says is that if you if you understand that a news producer has um, a lot of things that they know about that are going on, and that there are practical um, con- constraints on on what gets produced, then um, a what's going to happen in newsrooms then is that they are going to um, develop a type of culture around decision-making processes that allow them to quickly assess what is news and what is not, what is the most important news and what is not. So it's not necessarily even a case of what they run and what they don't, but also the kind of um, play that it's going to get. That is, is it going to get a thousand words and be on the front page of your newspaper? Or is it going to be buried inside the A section on page 21 and get about you know, a 200-word brief? Um, there are a couple different types of things at play there then. It's not just a case of its newsworthiness in general, but how newsworthy it is um, in terms of the, the amount of length and context that are going to be given to a story. Um, and, and then where it's, where it's going to be played. Is it going to be on the front page of your newspaper? Is it going to be on the top of the newscast where, where people we know are paying a little more attention? Um, this is a, a type of economic decision-making um, that is, again, built around some of the things we talked about earlier, which is scarcity. Um, if there is a scarcity of news space um, or, or airtime, then journalists have to figure out ways to come up with a kind of a standardized way of thinking about the news and what is news and what is not. Um, a lot of these processes have been developed over time, but one of the things that was really interesting to me as a journalist is how quickly I, I ingested um, the news value culture without really ever being formally taught in a newsroom. And that is from watching how my editor made decisions um, from when I pitched stories to him and um, you know was, was given feedback, either that's not really news or that's not really that big of a deal or um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good story, but I don't spend too much time on it. There's some other things going on. Um, I quickly began to ascertain the way in which my first boss thought about the news, and that is that the, the decision-making processes that he um, had in terms of determining whether um, my stories were going to get full length, where they were going to play, and so forth. Um, he probably ingested that from his boss um, and so forth down the line. So a lot of what happens in these news cultures then is that they are kind of taught in background um, to one another and 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 culturally transmitted to each other, not as a set of values that are written in a code of conduct or ethics, or there's a style book sitting on a shelf somewhere that everybody looks up to determine what is news, but rather through aggregate decision-making processes. That is the day-to-day decisions that news companies make every single day. Um, over time, you become enculturated as a, as a young reporter to understand what the values of news are based on what your decision-making process is on the news, in the newsrooms that you start out in. Um, so personnel in, in, in newsrooms, editors, reporters, there's a lot of different levels in which this plays. They, they do have a huge amount of um, power in terms of um, you know, deciding what gets through. 
But, you know, when people talk about the news agenda, you know, like that this the, that there's some sort of secret cabal in which journalists are getting in rooms and deciding how to spin things, it, it's really it's it's really much more automated than that and 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 unthinking in some ways because at some point you I can look at a story right now that's happening in the news and I can tell you whether it's going to play well in the news or not in terms of being a big deal. Um, because I have just been taught by that culture over time um, that there are certain things we tend to value. And that cultural piece is really important because um, culture tends to get transmitted us to us through acts of ritual and um, through acts of, of, of um, you know, real world, practical, hands in the dirt kind of experiences and not necessarily through formal teaching, you know, where um, there's somebody there giving me a lecture about the, the news values. Um, now, there's, there are one of the ways in which we talk about this here at Lehigh is, and I'm not even sure where this came from. I tried to, I tried to Google the, the original source of this, but it's, it's funny how the internet works because people start picking these things up and running them, um, and uh, they don't give any credit to the original source. And, and so we, we talk about the seven news values here at Lehigh. Um, best as I can determine, it has come from a couple different organizations, um, one, of, one of which was a list put together by The Atlantic a few years ago. Um, but I am not entirely sure how far back this goes. But I've seen this in textbooks um, that run in my field. So it's a pretty solid um, list of, of basically how journalists come to value the news. And so I'm going to give that to you. I've got a link to it on the show notes on, on uh, backshoppodcast.com. Uh, um, and uh, so if you want to see the link to that and, and read through a little more, it's there. Um, but just to give you some sense of how those values then play out, um, what does gatekeeping look like? So the seven news values, I'm going to read them and I'll go through them individually. Um, impact, timeliness, prominence, proximity, weirdness, conflict, and currency. So if you look at those, that list of seven is basically, these are the things that news has come to value in terms of decision-making processes. That is, if it has more of this, then it's going to be more likely to be seen as news. It can help you understand why something gets um, played up and some things don't. So impact, for example. Impact is the number of people whose lives will be um, affected by the story. Um, and what that means is that um, you know if you have a news story out there that um, is going to have an impact on a large subset of the population, um, then then you're going to think about that news differently. Um, and so um, one of the, so if you think about um, something in the news, for example, um, where um, you know how politics can get covered very unevenly, for example, you know um, the, the healthcare debates in, in 2010 um, when they were working on the Affordable Care Act and the large impact that that law was going to have on people, whether they had insurance or not, uh, you know, and and that relative to a small bill that's being considered by Congress to uh, tweak some regulation somewhere that was going to have a, an impact on a small set of the population, they are going to get outsized levels of coverage because of that. So the more people that a story impacts, um, the more likely it is that they that that's going to get major coverage, not just covered, but major coverage. And secondly, is timeliness. Um, journalists value recency. One of the things that separates you know um, newspaper journalism from books is that you know they they often cover the same types of things. They are types of histories, but books um, tend to be longer term, um, and they tend to take the longer view on a particular set of events or or details. The news tends to value things that are happening right now, um, which means that 
relative to the last publication date is going to be more likely to be the window by which something is considered news. So if you're a daily newspaper, most of what you see in the daily news is going to be something that happened since yesterday. Um, if it's a weekly newspaper, timeliness will be built, built around what happened in the last week. Um, we use the phrase, that's old news. And there's a reason for that because we even as a culture have kind of ingested this idea that news is new. Um, and so if a journalist runs into information that was a story like four months ago and they missed it, it's just not going to get the kind of play that it would have gotten if they'd realized that information, you know, since it, right in the middle of a news cycle. Um, prominence. Um, journalists um, will tend to um, have a higher, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the journalists will tend to have a um, think think of something as news um, a little more often, um, or take a, a piece of information uh, that's attached to a person of, of celebrity or prominence, and play it up if it's related to somebody who's who's well known or important. Um, one of the examples that gets used a lot is um, the issue of, of AIDS in the 1980s and how um, it was covered very differently post Magic Johnson's announcement that he had HIV. Um, and be, because he was a person who was at the height of his basketball career. And, um, you know, he was a person who was globally well-known. Um, he became the face of a different way of thinking about and covering HIV because of it. Um, and so his prominence had an impact. Now, by then, you know, we had had thousands of cases of HIV that had turned into AIDS. And there was, an, uh, a, you know, an epidemic that was happening in the, in the 80s um, and, and a culture that largely was not paying attention to the issue. Um, and Johnson's announcement was credited with kind of a change in terms of how it was covered, um, and it shifted newsmaking processes su such that some of those stories were told with a little more depth um, or a little more context and understanding. Proximity. Um, news is local. Now, local locality can really depend on the publication. You know, in a, in a small community, you know, you, you cover your small community. Um, a regional or state-wide you know, newspaper... Um, you know, is going to be covering things at that kind of level. And then you've got national news like USA Today, New York Times, Washington Post. Then you have some of the biggies with national ambitions like the Boston Globe, um, LA Times. You know, they, they tend to take a more national or even global approach in some cases. Um, but that, what that also means is that, you know, um, a story that might be um, outside the area but is big is going to get underplayed compared to the same thing happening locally. So, for example, I, I'm from California, um, and this, the coverage of the wildfires is mostly being done by, by state and regional newspapers out there um, because that is a local story. Now, I'm seeing wildfire coverage in some of the, some of the news publications out here, but it's not being covered with any kind of uh, depth and context relative to what you see out there. Um, what's interesting about proximity, just as a side note, is it has really changed in the age of the internet because um, these news sites are are local newspapers in a lot of cases, but they have a global audience. And so, what that means is they tend to do a little more um, outside of their their coverage area than they used to, and that has led to some of the problems that we have talked about when we talked about news economics, where. Um, you know, it used to be you were just competing against your own local news sources for news, and now you're competing against everybody. And so it's very difficult um, when advertising has been chopped up into, into um, national and global audiences, um, and yet you are trying to cover local news to figure out how to chase both. And so proximity has become a real um, tension point, um, yet, and yet it is still a, a news value. Um, 
Weirdness. Uh, weirdness is where, you know, we, uh, in, in class, I say this, it's not a story if a, a dog bites a man because that happens a lot, but it is a story if a man bites a dog. Um, you'll see these stories about, you know, criminals, dumb criminals who do things um, that get them caught or um, celebrity news will sometimes fall into this category, um, you know, where they're just uh, whatever Kanye West is up to and, um, you know, these days um, or, you know, Something, something where a celebrity is making waves for, for not just being a celebrity, but for doing something strange or bizarre, it's more likely to get covered. Um, conflict. Um, this is honestly the main way in which news gets presented anyway. It's, it's, we will talk about framing in a, in a, in a couple episodes, but um, framing is honestly the way most news is portrayed. That is that a lot of news is in, in terms, unless it's like a soft feature news type story, um, tends to get portrayed. Uh, portrayed as an argument between two parties or two sides. Um, the, idea, the idea that journalists ought to cover both sides tells me that, you know, in terms of that's what the public thinks, um, tells me that the public tends to see the news in terms of conflict as well. We have some really interesting research on this, by the way, that, that talks about, um, you know, the, the ways in which we're hardwired for negative news. <clears throat> and what that means is that um, from an evolutionary psychology mindset, um, we have come to see conflict as something that will heighten our, our uh, something where we, it needs our heightened attention. Um, just as uh, over the course of human evolution, we've been able to survive as a species because we have paid attention to threat. And so we, um, our brains are wired um, to, to think about threat as something that it, we should stop whatever else we're paying attention to and pay attention to this. I did some research when I was a grad student that, that took a deeper look at this. And one of the things we found is that conflict is contextual. And that is that we are going to be more likely to pay attention to threat and conflict if it is um, something that also has some of the, one of these other values, such as proximity. That is, a threat that's nearby is going to be something where I'm going to stop whatever else I'm doing and pay attention to that um, versus um, a threat that's happening far away and doesn't have any impact on me. Um, but journalists have definitely, you know, you, you take a look at your front page of your newspaper today and, and take a look at those stories. Take a look at the first two or three paragraphs of anything on the front page. And you will more often than not see the two parties or more who are arguing about that particular story. That is, both sides are presented. They are having some sort of debate or um, um, argument about what ought to be done. And that is conflict. Um, lastly is um, currency. And that is, um, it, it's, it's a value that says that um, um, we tend to uh, cover things more if they're kind of in the vein of public concern. Um, and what that means is that if, if the culture's talking about this a lot, you know, if, if, it's, if it's something that we're debating a lot, I think probably the best example of this right now is probably um, gun regulation. Um, then something that attaches itself to that, that is something that happens in the news, um, that, that's, that strikes a chord with that current debate is going to be more likely to get covered because of it, just because it's, 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 uh, adjacently attached to that issue. So for example, um, a, a, you know, um, a mass shooting would obviously get covered no matter what, but you know, if an example of like a kid finding a gun and shooting himself when he's like three or four in a home or, or 10 or 11, or a guy shoots himself cleaning his gun at age 25, 30, um, those stories are going to be more likely to cover. The young kid probably wouldn't probably would get covered anyway, but like an, an adult doing this, um, it's going to get more prominence in some ways because um, 
the uh, it, it's it's attached itself to an issue of larger concern about gun control and regulation. So those are seven values, and so what these these are these are not things that are formally taught in newsrooms. They are um, values that um, gatekeeping theorists have will tell you have just been um, replicated and digested and passed on to others through ritual and decision-making processes over time. And so a young journalist who might enter the newsroom with a head full of independence um, will slowly see themselves changed by the decision-making processes that happen in newsroom. A young reporter who may have ideas about how to cover the news differently, editors are gatekeepers for them. You know, so, and so if you have a story idea, it's going to get shaped and molded by an editor who is um, – who is applying these news values in the background, you know, and and shaping a story in ways that will subtly alter that um, the the story that a, a reporter might originally had in in terms of what comes out in the final product. And every single time a reporter produces a story, it is a learning experience for them um, to help them uh, think about how to pitch stories better next time. You know, we are kind of creatures of, of of social interaction and habit, and we are going to. Um, learn over time the subtle ways in which to please the people we need to please in order to get things published. Um, it's a little less of a concern, I think, if you're a professional full-time reporter, but if you're a freelancer, um, you can bet that this is definitely going to be part of your process. It's, you're you're going you're gonna to learn along the way what needs to happen to get your story approved for publication so that you can get paid. Um, so there's lots of little ways in which this, um, these cultural ways of thinking about news values um, work their way into everyday production. And I think it's important to see that that is really what's going on here. It's not that um, journalists have these rules written and pasted on the wall like the Ten Commandments. Uh, it is much more like um, a type of ritual and decision-making culture that just exists and has, um, has been passed down over decades. Now, that being said, these are changeable, um, and that is that if you have an active um, uh, movement in your newsroom to rethink these news values, that then maybe there's some other ways of thinking about um, how to conceive the news and how to produce it, um, to look at these news values and say, there are gaps here that um, we need to address because there are underserved communities who are not in, uh, affected by any of these. I can think of, like for example, marginalized folks um, who don't get covered as much. We know, for example, uh, minorities don't get nearly the level of coverage that, that white folks do in most communities. Um, and you can almost see in the news values where that happens because they are not people of prominence. Um, in terms of impact, a journalist might take a look at their paying audience and decide that there are certain people who are worthy of coverage because they know that they're going to be the type of people who are reading. Um, and so that can lead to some real bad decision-making processes, you know, if, you, if you're not thinking about marginalized people in your coverage. So the gates can change. Um, but I do think that if you, if, you, you know, if you look at these and say, well, we shouldn't have them at all, um, how chaotic the newsmaking process would be if, if you didn't have any guiding principles at all in terms of helping figure out what is news. The other thing I will mention very quickly is that um, these are values that, that – work their way. Gatekeeping as a theory can also explain entertainment decision-making processes. It doesn't just describe news, although it's mostly the way we talk about it. Um, but one of the things I like to point out is that this gatekeeping can be broadly applied across any level of media making, um, just from like things like studio decision-making and, and networks and, and, uh, and, and television that decide what's, what gets aired, what gets made. 
um, the overall point with gatekeeping is that it is trying to describe the incredible power media makers have um, to determine what it is that we um, are able to receive as media consumers. Um, I like to talk about this for a couple reasons. First of all, I think it's important for people who go into media to be aware of this, to be aware of their power. Um, because we should be critical uh, about interrogating those, those processes that determine what we make. Um, and I want my students personally to go into our, the field uh, really being careful about not abusing that power and to be thinking critically about processes that might not be fair to people in their communities that they're covering. But on the other end, as news consumers, I think it's important for us to be aware of gatekeeping power as well. Because by definition, what this means is there are things that we don't see. That is, there are things that are getting covered in the news, but there are also things that are not being covered. And that a lot of it could just be a case of lack of space, but also it could be a lack of editorial imagination. And that we as consumers need to push news organizations and journalists then to conceive of news more broadly and to cover news more broadly as a result. So that's gatekeeping theory. Next time we will talk about agenda setting theory and how information comes to see itself as diffused in culture. Thanks for listening. The Backshop is a non-commercial podcast recorded and produced by Jeremy Latat at Lehigh University. Special thanks to Kaseki, whose music was used for this podcast and made available via Gemendo with a Creative Commons license.